Hi, and welcome to Beyond Prisons, a podcast on incarceration and prison abolition. I'm one of your hosts, Kim Wilson. In this episode, Brian and I sat down with Jose Diaz, a writer, artist, and student at NYU. Jose shares his experience of being arrested and imprisoned on a technical violation during a COVID-19 crisis. He describes the conditions inside of New York jails where he was held and the lack of medical care inside. Jose talks about the organizing efforts that secured his release and how exceptionalism played a role in gaining people's support. He is roundly critical of exceptionalism and respectability politics and argues that these things need to be interrogated and rejected by everyone, but especially by groups that are calling for the mass release of prisoners. Finally, Jose tells us why he thinks that demanding the immediate release of prisoners is important and why reform efforts so often fall short of addressing people's problems. Jose Diaz is a master's student majoring in social and cultural analysis with an emphasis on Latino studies at NYU. As a student and advocate, he seeks to unravel ideological narratives that underlie our common notions of race, class, and gender, and how those ideas inform public space and human interaction. He is also a writer and public speaker where he uses the power of storytelling to highlight his personal struggles with incarceration while challenging theoretical postulations about the carceral system. He advocates and educates on the importance of inclusivity within prison initiative programs and education, as well as pushing back against the language, privilege, and ideas that perpetuates the reproduction of negative notions of people of color. As an artist and photographer, he is currently engaged in a project that looks at the urban landscape of New York City as a place to explore cultural memory, the city block, and overlapping diasporas. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Beyond Prisons. Uh, Glad you're home. Uh, I said that before, but uh, I don't think it can be said enough times. so just wanted to, you know, kind of lay the groundwork here and uh, give folks some context. Can you describe your experience with uh, what happened uh, with you in terms of, you know, being in Rikers, um, how you ended up there and things like that? And please, please do not feel like you have to disclose anything that you're not comfortable disclosing. All right. No problem. Definitely. Um, so basically, I was rearrested um, early March. I think it was like March second. I can't quite recall, but I think it's March second uh, for a parole violation. Um, I was arrested at basically uh, at parole in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and taken straight to um, Manhattan Detention Center. Um, after being there a week, um, I was transferred out of Manhattan Detention Center due to um, an issue with the building. Someone had broke the water main in the building and or a water pipe or something to that extent. And it flooded the visit room and they just needed to basically move guys out so that they could basically do repairs. Um, at least that's the, that's the narrative they shared with us. It was just the elevators also stopped working. So they didn't want to continue to like... um have to like cart things up and down the stairs especially when it comes to food so they just moved the whole tower of guys um either to the bronx or to rikers island um i was sent to rikers island 
and basically, uh, I mean, that, uh, pardon me, I was sent to the Bronx at mm-hmm. that point. Um, so I spent about a week or two in the Bronx. Um, it's they, it's called a boat. And at that point, COVID started to really become a thing, and there were, like, many cases happening, um, especially in Rikers Island. Um, and quarantine and everything started to become, like, an issue. And but myself and plenty of other guys became, you know, hyper-aware of what was, like, unfolding in the streets. Um, so basically that was what's going on. So things had changed in the facility. Basically, the correction officers had access to masks. Um, we stopped getting like um, social services to our to our to our um, housing units, to our dorms, um, and just medical just like basically stopped for us. So if unless it was like a medical emergency, like you were diabetic or something that they had to address. They had basically canceled um, sick call. Wow. Which is, yeah. So during that time, it's like, you know, we started learning about social distancing. So like my bed in 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 uh in the boat, you're literally like head to head or head to foot or foot to foot with another person's bed. Just wanted to clarify. So when you're talking about the boat, you mean the barge and it's an actual barge. Yeah, it's an actual barge. Yeah, because I'm not sure that uh, a lot of people are even, you know, like it took me a while to wrap my head around that when I first learned of it. And I'm like, are you serious? So we're literally locking people up on a boat, basically. Yeah, it's uh, it's literally it's called Vernon Bain, Vernon C. Bain Correctional Center. It's uh, it's in the Bronx. Um, and to, to Hunts Point, um, and it's literally a boat, uh, a boat that's meant to operate as a prison. Um, it's interesting. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's filthy too. Um, you have like no, um, actual like operating windows. Wow. So when the air conditioner actually went down, so you basically had no outside ventilation, no air filtering in mm-hmm. fresh air at least. And then when you look at where the 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 air is supposed to be coming in, um, and you know they haven't replaced the filter in years, if ever. Um, and it's extremely like dirty. Um, and so if you're even at, at best times, the air you're getting in, it's like it's contaminated, it's dirty. So it's really common because of the air that's coming in to be very dirty, as well as you being in close proximity to people in general that, you know, you're going to get sick. Mm-hmm. And the food is like extremely processed and of low quality. You're going to have stomach problems when you first um, get incarcerated because your body needs to like acclimate to this new condition. Um, so when I first went in within a, within the week of me getting to the barge, um, I fell sick. So, yeah, um, what I, the, what I felt at that point was basically, um, my body ached extremely and I had like just diarrhea. And at one point I had cold sweat. So all I did was just 
huddle in my blankets for like a whole day and the next day I began to get better. Um, so I don't know what it was. I didn't see a doctor. I just thought it was like common sickness and um who knows? God knows. Um anyway, um due to the fact there's no ventilation as well, um my throat began to hurt and guys were also smoking inside the the facility. So I had contracted laryngitis from the smoke. Um, so for like three days, I had put down for sick call, not realizing that it had been canceled. No one really made us aware that sick call was canceled. It was like a decision mm. that was made and not spoken about. And when I saw the the officer who does the escorts to sick call, I asked her, hey, you know, I've been putting down for sick call. She said, oh, it's canceled. I was like, I'm really in pain right now. My throat, you know, I need to go down to sick call. My throat hurts. And she was like, well, um, I'll look into that for you. And she never returned. And um, a day or so passed. And then I basically told the officer who was a steady there and just let him know, like, hey, I'm in pain. My throat's swollen. I had been taking ibuprofen to deal with the pain. It wasn't getting better. And you kind of kind of make it seem as if you may have contracted COVID. And and then they called me down a sick call. Um well, it wasn't sickle, but they had to bring me down to medical because you don't know whether if that if that's what it was or not. But they that's the precaution, and I just had laryngitis. They gave me uh, some penicillin, and it's interesting. Within the first day of being given the um, penicillin, like it, it made a tremendous difference in how mm-hmm. I was feeling. Um, and then the doctor who prescribed it for me told me to come back the next day in the afternoon to get another dosage. And later on that night, um, I would be given the rest of my medication, so I don't wouldn't have to come down to medical. So when I went down, um, the the doctor that I saw was a different doctor. Actually, tried to take me off the medication. Wow! Just after having given me one pill. Um, so I kind of like made my case for it. She was like, you know what? I'm not gonna like reverse this decision. It's whatever. So it's really about cost and them believing whether you're in pain or not. Um, even mm-hmm. though when it's apparent. Um, so I was fine then and um within a week of um of that passing, well within two weeks I was like told to pack up and that I was leaving. So that was like um I believe it was around the same day that um I think the Blasio made his announcement that um they were gonna begin letting guys go. I mm-hmm. think that was the twenty third. I'm not too sure. So when they told me to pack up that I was going to Rikers Island, I was like, holy cow, like, they might be fucking letting me go, you know? Yeah. Um, so I was like, all right, this is like, it bodes well. But I didn't anticipate Rikers Island to be, like, contaminated, you know? Um, I heard, you hear things, like, through grapevine, but, you know, when you see it for what it is, you're like, wow, you know, this is not good. So by the time I got to um, Otis Bantam Correctional Center, which is OBCC in Rikers Island, um, yeah, there were already cases um, for corona. Um, They had already, like, within a week, they had quarantined, like, two houses under us. And by the time I was released, because I only spent two weeks there, um, by the time I was released, at that point on the dorm side in OBCC, all houses were quarantined except for mine and one other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
they will quarantine. So how quarantine basically works is like if you had someone who might have tested positive for COVID, they take them out, ship them somewhere else, and then they lock down who's ever been exposed um, just to see whether they develop any sickness or anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah. it's not like they're, so they're act- actively testing. Exactly. Like there's, there's no testing. There's no adherence to any kind of medical protocol or anything like that. Mm-hmm. None whatsoever. It's just let's lock them in. Let's see if they get sick and go from there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the crazy part is, is that somehow guys were still finding ways to slip out of the doors and pass the guards and finding ways to be in the hall with everybody else who was not quarantined. So it was the possibility of it spreading like that as well that like intensified a lot of like the the the, the sentiments of fear, you know. So it was like really happening, and you know, guys who were basically um, coming in like the other the day before I left, they just brought in two new guys, and they only had been incarcerated for seven days. So basically, like, they're fresh off the street. They could be carriers. There's no set standard or test. Um, you know, and it's just really just has been like that. Um, before that, like a day or two before that, they tried to bring guys in who had been quarantined. And they took them somewhere, and all the, they kind of deemed that they didn't have COVID and decided to send them with us. Mm-hmm. And guys have been like basically telling other people, hey, you can't come in this housing unit anymore because number one, we can't, it's physically impossible to social distance yourself from anybody. We don't have adequate cleaning supplies. We don't have adequate access to medical before COVID. And it's only gotten worse. And now that we just wanted to prevent everybody from like overpacking us, and it was not nothing really personal. It was just, correction officers and DOC and just were going along their business as usual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So pretty much um, when I was told I was being released, I was like, I knew for a fact that Cuomo, um, that whole initiative and what de Blasio was saying was not true because the only reason why I'm out because of a lot of advocacy efforts and solidarity all across the board from people from NYU and other various organizations coming together to advocate for me and my release. Mm-hmm. And just, mm-hmm. Amazingly, it works. So I'm like extremely appreciated for NYU Prison Education Program and all those who stepped up to the plate and made it happen. I definitely want to get more into your experiences, you know, in the different facilities, and I want to hear about the organizing. Um, that happened to get you out. But I, I did want to take a step back to the beginning of the story to ask you something that, you know, you mentioned here on this episode. I know that you brought it up on uh, Democracy Now! when you were on this morning. Um, and that relates to the transfers that you experienced. So I know that, you know, like you mentioned, there was some semblance of attempting to do quarantine poorly on the inside but you can't really social distance during the actual transfers either, right? Like, can you talk a little bit about what it actually entails to be moved from facility to facility, you know, being Mm -hmm. on buses with people? I wanted to know if you had any thoughts on that. All right. So, um, so when they tell you to pack up and move, they literally 
give you like a garbage bag and it's like put all your stuff in it and let's go. And they'll bring you down to a holding pen where there's going to be people in there. At bare minimum, the guys you left with mm-hmm. are going to be there. And um, the there's no sanitizing these cells. So you got to think about them as like um, doing your best to like sweep and mop like a train station. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like pretty much like that. Uh, that's pretty much it. And so you go into these cells and you wait for like hours with a whoever's going to go with you on the transfer. And so when your time finally does come up, you're going to be packed in like a school bus. We've seen these buses. They're the blue and white corrections buses. So um, essentially you're handcuffed through, um, with your, um, you're handcuffed by your hand and by your foot to another individual's. Um, and you have to sit next to each other on the bus, and usually the bus is filled with people, whether they're sick or not. Um, that's how a transfer goes until they take you wherever you got to go. And so in my case, when I was transferred from Manhattan, they packed us up and we sat in the bus from like 5.30 to like maybe like 2.30 in the morning. Wow. Um, yeah, it just, the Bronx was not ready. It didn't have space for people at all. And they were kind of like maybe protesting this mass transfer from um from Manhattan, which was three buses full of guys. And so, yeah, so it's like a a bus that could hold um, 20 people in the back and at least two or three individual seats. Um, So you, like in in our cabin that held 20 seats, there were 16 of us. Um, And the other buses were filled up as well. It was three other buses that were all getting transferred in at once. And we were all jam-packed into a holding pen pen at once and then transferred into a dorm at once without any type of screening or or anything. Um, That's pretty much like what what happens. Um, So that's what, what, what my experience was at we're going to the barge. Um, the same experience when leaving the barge. <laughs> they put you in handcuffs. They hold you in a cell for hours. You're waiting on a bus for like another three hours in front of the prison until they open the door and say, hey, guys, come in. And then they put you in a cell. And like I was packed up at early in the afternoon. I didn't get into a housing unit to like around 9, 30, 10 o'clock. Mm. So you're pretty much like like um just being held and told where to go and where not to go mm-hmm. and it was pretty much um the same experience when i was released put into a holding cell put into a bus like literally holding my bag and like on top of another guy mm-hmm. um although i'm not handcuffed to him it's like i'm not even an inch like our shoulders are all touching and um yeah there was no test uh for whether um any of us were infected prior to being released we weren't giving any masks no no anything just told her go (laughs) wait for the bus and just go and i was told to pack up earlier that day like around 12 ish 12 30 and i didn't actually get off rikers island till like around 2 30 ish in the morning so it's like a really an extremely long process where um it took them like about eight hours just to get me down into intake 
And at that point, I wasn't even, like, escorted because there was so much going on. It was just, like, pure mayhem. And then I started an intake from, like, 8.30-ish to 8.30, in between 8.39, all the way to be taken out of the, that facility, OBCC, at 1.30 in the morning and being processed um, and basically discharged and actually leaving on a on an MTA bus by 2.30. Wow. Yeah, Thank and I get that. home to like 5 in the morning, so... Yeah. So, I mean, it, it seems like even what little they may or may not be doing on the inside to keep people separate is almost completely compromised or watered down by the fact that you're crammed in close proximity with people from different facilities on your way in and out of the facilities. I think um, their their thing is of um, it's not really um, an attempt to keep people separate as compared to, oh, my God, someone has it. Let's just seal them in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that that's their way of quarantine. Let's just seal them in so the disease doesn't spread. And if the officer gets sick or whatever, like it is what it is. But um mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's really not it's just lock in. Right. So to that, you know, that actually leads to the next thing I wanted to ask you about. I wondered if you could tell people a little bit more about you know, we're hearing not only on Rikers, but around the country, they're locking prisons and dorms and facilities down. Um, what does that situation look like on the inside? Not only just in general, you know, in terms of being like keep locked in yourself for almost the entire day, but in terms of, you know, uh, the services and in terms of the stress that people are under, what is lockdown like in this, in this sort of pandemic situation? All right. Um, so it's literally um, placing a whole dorm on K-Block um, where you don't have um, any access to anything at this point. Because um, so like right now, they basically canceled social services out of fear of like um, distancing. But I guess they began to force workers to come in. And I don't know, it's just really weird. Um, but so they canceled barbershop um barbershop's important because at least if like you're a diabetic or or just being able to like cut your fingernails or toenails so to prevent um like dirt from getting under them mm. and that's like another way of like if you wash your hands you know and you still have dirt on your fingernails your hands are still like not clean right um so you didn't have access to that um you didn't have access to basically um cleaning supplies so it's very rationed from the from the onset without COVID, and it's also locked away. So the brooms, the mops, any chemicals that would have been used for cleaning are locked away now. And but they're also like doubly rationed at this point. Um, so it's like I had a sponge and I wanted to clean it and keep it to the side and always have access to a sponge so I could keep my area clean. Um, the officer saw that and took it away from me. So that's some of the stuff that they do. Um, but quarantine itself, um, what it looks like from the outside looking in, it's just a person's just locked in. They have masks. And um, 
if they're going to let him out, they let him out separately, but the officers are, like, standing, like, 15, 20 feet away from them and just watching them um, and making sure that they keep their distance from them. But um, if they believe people are affected, they're still in a dorm with an mm. individual. So it's like my bed is three feet away from somebody um, using the bathroom. We all use the same bathroom, the same showers, and we don't have adequate cleaning supplies. So if there is a time where the virus is present and is on surfaces, um, you really don't have the opportunity to really clean anything. So if you're going to get it, you're going to get it on your body and you just have to be very conscious because the only thing you can actually do well, at least in my situation, is wash your hands adequately enough and just don't touch your face at all. Mm -hmm. So to answer like a little bit more exactly, so when we saw guys being quarantined, it was just like you're locked in. That's it. They can't come out. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, if guys did come out and wandered away or did something, they were just, like, out with a mask or not wearing the mask on their face and just people are like, they're from this dorm. Why aren't anybody, like, escorting them back? So they're just allowing people just to walk and do whatever they want to do to a certain degree. So there isn't really any active containment of COVID. So there's not an actual quarantine section or unit. There's just limited isolation to the extent that they can possibly have, you know, like within the confines of a dorm unit. So is is that accurate or it, did, did I miss? Uh, yeah, I think that's accurate. If they, okay. if someone was tested positive for COVID in a dorm, they'll just lock the door, lock the dorm. Oh, and so we'll, they'll lock the entire dorm. So the person who's sick and then everyone that's in that dorm would be locked in. They would try to, yes, but they would try to take the person who tested positive out. Mm, okay. And to, okay. And to verify whether they had had COVID or not. Yeah. But if, the, but if the individual, you don't know if the person has COVID until they show symptoms. Well, I mean, it's, and, it, well, and that's that's the tricky part with COVID is that you can be asymptomatic and have it. So exactly. even if you're not, even if you're not displaying symptoms you could have it. So there's no way to actually tell unless you're testing. And if they're not testing everyone, um, it, you know, it's like waiting until some people show up with symptoms is kind of like a half-ass, you know, um, mm -hmm. attempt to, to do anything. It gives the illusion that they're doing something without them actually doing anything that's going to be meaningful in terms of protecting other people's lives. Exactly. So if the person apparently is like shows a symptom of COVID, they get them out and it looks like, oh, everybody's safe, but it's more than likely it's already spread in the dorm. So that's why they just mm -hmm. lock the dorm down. And if somebody happens to begin showing symptoms, they'll just do it again, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, you're not stopping the spread, you're not containing the spread, you're not testing the people who are left in the dorm to see whether they have it or not. So yes, I agree with you. Yeah. Wow. And also, it's like some guys who have jobs, like one of the guys who was in the quarantine dorm, they still let him out to, to do his job, which is like he was a line server in the mess hall. So he would serve guys food. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, it was a lot of stuff going on that just didn't make sense. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, it's like you're handling other people's food and you're, it's just such a mess. You know, you're talking about sort of this deficit in hygiene products and they're, you know, the COs have masks, everything seems to be really rationed. I was wondering if you witnessed anyone, whether it be, you know, makeshift masks or anything like that, what were people trying to do on the inside to protect themselves to the extent that you witnessed anything like that? So one of the major ways um, people protected themselves is that if no one in your dorm was apparently sick, you stopped the new people from coming in who were new and you didn't know. Mm-hmm. So you, when they brought a new person in, you're like, dude, you can't come in here. It's, it's over. Mm-hmm. Go somewhere else. So that's one of the major ways. Um, the second way is basically if guys got their hands on masks, they would use that. Um, but the most effective way that I've seen anybody do, it's also a way I did, is just tie a shirt around your face mm-hmm. and don't touch anybody. You know, mm-hmm. that's as much as you could possibly do. Mm-hmm. And, that's interesting that you yeah. said that about um, tying the masks um, around, you know, around your face because um, at many facilities, you can't do that. Right. right. And you'll get you'll get written up if you tie uh, anything around your face. Right. And it's like they because they think you're trying to start a riot or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, well, it, 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 got, just, it, it got to the point where you did it. And you if they told you something, you're like, basically, fuck you. Give me a mask. Then. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. They're like, mm-hmm. well, they're not giving you a mask. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's pretty much it. And also, like, one of the things that um, it's interesting, like, what people hold on to. So there was, like, a, an announcement on TV saying that Jay-Z and Meek Mills had donated 50,000 masks to guys in Rikers. And so it's, like, interesting how people are just like, Jay-Z is going to look out for us and uh, we're all going to get masks now. And um, Oh, my God. Yeah, and that's, like, what people latch on to. Um, also, with, like, Access to like basic access to um like like knowledgeable resources about how to protect yourself against COVID mm-hmm. is limited. Um, because like me coming out now, I could Google like a whole bunch of ways to to look at things to keep myself safe outside of what Cuomo was saying. Yeah. Um. So just being able to have like adequate resources of multiple ways in which to protect yourself besides what the state is telling you and failing at is important mm-hmm. because God knows what they're saying. And the truth is, is that they don't know about the ways in which it still can't be transferred to other mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and it's also like they say, oh, if you're young and healthy, you can't get infected. But then there's young and healthy people who get infected. So which, is like, which is which is absolute pure nonsense because it, it just as we're seeing uh as this thing is ravaging you know um people both inside and outside across the country that it does hit uh younger people too yeah so it's like one thing i do say that i believe is in fact effective is washing your hands <laughs> mm-hmm. you know um and much of the hygiene etiquette that you do learn um, while incarcerated, it's kind of like certain standard of things that you do anyway. Like you always wash your hands. You really don't shake people's hands. You really don't make that much, try your best not to make 
as much contact with people. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, these are things that you kind of, like, learn. But then again, it's like, um, because of, like, the incarceration of a lot of homeless people and mentally ill people, the prison system is not only a place that houses people who are awaiting parole violations or awaiting um, um, court hearings or trials for said crimes. There's also a people that, for people who are mentally ill, a place to mm-hmm. warehouse people who are mentally ill, as well as homeless people, mm-hmm. people who lack a lot of resources or like a lot of their sense to keep certain things clean. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a lot of that stuff going on. One perfect example, there was um, an old man, and this is like a, a, a combination of all the things I've been talking about. There was an old man there. Um, he's had to be like in his late 60s, early 70s. Um, he shows signs of dementia. Um, you will pass by. Um, he'll lay in his bed have an, and will have like a full-blown conversation with himself. But when you spoke to him, he was lucid. He was clear. He knew how to converse. He knew what was going on. Um, he was experiencing kidney failure. Um, so long story short, he will go to medical with his complaints. This is before, well, he was actually like diagnosed with having something. And so they knew that he had issues, like health, health issues, mm-hmm. but they had gave him the wrong medication. So he stopped taking the medication that they were giving him because it just wasn't helping at all. And so one day we basically, well, I basically saw him like wiping something out of the urinal. So I was like, why do you even have your hands in a urinal? You know, that's with no gloves or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, the only reason why he was doing that because a lot of the fear of COVID was there and basically the guys who like the gangs and stuff who were in the house were basically threatening people um, about cleanliness and that if you weren't clean to a certain degree, um, they were like, want to beat you up. But oh, mm-hmm. even though those kind of rules kind of like got skipped over with them because they were also dirty themselves. Mm-hmm. But it's like just another level of oppression. But my whole point being is that the guy was so scared that someone would do something to him and he didn't want to like jeopardize anybody else, like anybody else's health. He was, it turns out he was trying to like wipe out blood. He was urinating blood and kidney failure apparently. And so I basically forced the correction officer to take him to medical. Wow. And so they wow. took him out. Yeah, they took him out. And in a few hours, they brought him right back in. Oh, my God. Oh, my they God. Did, they did nothing for this guy. Probably gave him a few, a few Skittles and told him that, hey, figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, which and, speaks to the, the fact that there really is no care, no health care um, that happens in prison. Um, that there's, you know, in terms of even a minimum level of of healthcare um, and the people who are uh, working there, you know, nurses and uh, doctors, if there are any doctors at these various facilities um, are also have their hands tied because they, they're limited by what's available to them. Right. Like they may, you know, some of these people may want to prescribe something else, but can't because it's just not available and they're just not going to get it in um, for different folks. And it's not to make a, a you know, uh, excuses uh for you know for them um but just to highlight 
the fact that, you know, it, it is a, a complicated problem and there are, you know, various levels here um, that, you know, of, of uh, people that share the blame. No, I definitely agree with you. Um, and, you know, and like in my case with the laryngitis, the officer, I mean, um, the doctor, like he touched my throat and I like had to like push him off me because I was like, yo, dude, that really hurts. And then he looked and he saw like um, how large my throat was. And I had like, I was asthmatic and I had like croup when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I was fearful that, you know, I will have like one of those attacks. Mm -hmm. while mm -hmm. I was there and I know life I like I did 11 years upstate and I've seen guys die um just by a basic asthma attack because the person who was there for medical refused to resuscitate or do CPR or just even pay attention to the person and mm -hmm. so I knew like you know my mortality was something I questioned I needed to get help and that's why I said earlier like you kind of got to make it seemed like you had a I had to use like oh I might be sick who knows you know just yeah. get me get me down to medical and I I know exactly what's wrong I mean I have my throat's enlarged because of the smoke it's killing me I have no ventilation yeah yeah so it's like it's 10 of those things that you continuously experience and when I went down there one doctor wants to help me the other doctor wants to take me off the meds that are that are helping mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like that paradox and you know that they're only going to prescribe it if you need it. And then they have like the imperative like of saving DOC money somehow. Yeah. And it also made questions like the ideal of pain or suffering and how it's like mm -hmm. completely normalized and how, I don't know, for them, black and brown bodies don't experience pain or they rely about pain. Yeah. Maybe. Um, you know, it's just interesting, especially when it's mostly coming from you know, other people of color who are also policing us. So it looks at like as an institution or as a system that it kind of like reproduces some of these logics within itself, Absolutely. even though there might be like an underlying level of like self-hate going on. Mm -hmm. Because even though like one of the things that were kind of like became like very apparent, um, it's like some of the, the logics of criminalization of people of color. Um, it's like... It, it came out, it came to the forefront on what people were really feeling about you because COVID gave an excuse for people to socially distance and also not only socially distance, but also to treat you as if you're contaminated. But in yeah. reality, you weren't contaminated. They were just kind of like, I think, giving to you what they really felt about people who were incarcerated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As if they didn't do that anyway. Right. As if that wasn't a problem in general anyway. But it, I think it the situation it, it was intensified. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely intensified. And this also, you know, speaks to um, the the constant calls that we hear uh, from, you know, what I, I love to call well-meaning people. Well-meaning people are going to get us all killed. Um, well-meaning people who are like, well, all we need to do is diversify or, you know, have more people of color in uh, in these various oppressive institutions and then everything will be okay. And it's like, no, clearly no, it's not there. you don't understand the way systems work and what it means to be, you know, part of that system. Um, because, you know, while you as an individual may not hold those views or may want to do something, you know, to challenge that, uh, you really can't. You really can't. Uh, it's mm. it, There's no, 
there's no escaping the fact that this is a bigger thing than any one person, right? Um, no, definitely right. And one of the things that kind of like was just like astonished me like tremendously, um, and it's not to like really divert or anything, but like how like Blue Lives Matter positive a lot of the correction officers oh, yeah. were, especially being of people of color, yep. and what that implies, um, what it means in relation to Black Lives Matter. Yeah, and it was so, and I'm like, what? Like it's like after having like been removed from Rikers Island for like over f about 15 years, and then going back into that situation and realizing how much or how bad or how much more worse it it has become mm -hmm. is astonishing. Yeah. Um, and it's become worse on like in in two different ways where um some of the in one way the protections that we're giving to guys through surveillance constant surveillance of correction officers kind of stops some of the violences, but it also creates space for other violences to occur. Yeah, and it's just like what's going on? You know, it's just such like a like a inverse universe going on. So I want to kind of pivot back here, um, just being mindful of time um, and uh, return to something that we were talking about earlier that you you raised. And that was uh, around the organizing efforts that um, that got you out and, you know, uh, what, you know, what happened, what took place, um, you know, if you want to share um, the folks that were involved. Um, but I also want to touch on something that I think is um is also part of this story um, that, you know, uh, I don't know if, if you're comfortable talking about it, but it's around um, this notion of being, you know, exceptional um, and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and respectability politics and how that um, played into it um, in, in large part. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, um, how this all happened. I mean, I kind of have an inkling, um, so, Full disclosure, um, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, I, I want to hear it from you. Um, so um, many thanks to you, um, to Caitlin Noss, Rachel Bosch, everybody at the, the NYU Pep team, um, and all those who've been involved, like um, or have shown their interest in in helping and getting on the phones apps and stuff like that. But when it comes to the actual like on the ground organizing, the amount of work that came into it. Um, my only, my main point of contact was through Rachel Bosch, um, and her informing me about the work that she was doing and contacting um, the Legal Aid Society and also with my lawyer, with my mother, you as well, um, Caitlin as well. And just, you know, a lot of the work was happening behind my back and I wasn't aware of how much work that actually went into it. Oh, I'm still actually learning about it the best mm -hmm. way possible. Mm -hmm. So there's um, something happened. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know. And I got out and I was like, holy shit, I'm out. <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely to think about like some of the the logics of exceptionalism and respectability politics. Um, yeah, I think that definitely plays a role into thinking about um, maybe who to advocate for, what narratives we think about that are worth advocating for. And I think definitely people um, cherry pick as mm -hmm. to what to do. Um, in the case with the NYU Prison Education Program, um, it just so, you know, 
if I was just held on a parole violation and there was no COVID, there would have been like just regular support behind mm. it. But um, my life was clearly in danger. Mm. Um, and God knows when I would have gotten out. And so I guess the narrative to the powers that be had to be pushed that I was like possibly exceptional when in reality I'm really not. I'm just some guy who just study and read a lot and still use his words incorrectly. Um, mm -hmm. But the truth is, is that um, I think some of the work I've done in the past with advocacy and just overall just educating people about incarceration, my experience, and um, just making connections in general um, mm -hmm. provided a space or a place where people could question whether they care enough to advocate. Yeah. And honestly speaking, I'm a person who has always been critical of social justice advocacy because mm -hmm. I've seen how people become um, this this person who's cropped up as this exceptional person that needs to be um, shown as this sample or this paradigm of what um, education can possibly do when in reality it's not. No one really discusses what goes on from point A to Z. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that, exactly. yeah. So that's a part of like what we're missing that most people are still under heavy surveillance. Um, I still have like another year and a half left on parole. Um, my bachelor's degree didn't really matter to them. Mm -hmm. Um, the fact that I was in um in the process of graduating this May with my master's didn't matter to them. Um, any of my goals or ambitions or all my positive behavior did not matter at all whatsoever to DLC. Yeah. To them, I was just a person. I was just reduced to who I was um, mm -hmm. 15, 15 years ago. Yeah. Well, you're yeah. reduced to to uh you know your your past history. Uh, and, exactly. and it has nothing to do. And, you know, it's like maybe it, it might be helpful for us to explain a little bit what we mean by exceptionalism and uh, respectability politics, because I'm not sure that. Um, yeah, um, I think for, for me, it kind of reminds me of um, what's, um, what's that Booker T. Washington and, mm -hmm. his, and his talent intent. Um, and really thinking about this respectability politics is like um, thinking about who's defendable and who's not defendable. Yeah. Um, one way I could kind of like think about um, that, like what's a common, the narrative that kind of like held strong was when Obama was pushing the difference or creating a taxonomy between violent and nonviolent offenders. Mm -hmm. And that kind of like damaged a lot of stuff because uh, people who were there for like the seemingly um, innocuous crime of drug offenses mm -hmm. were, the people who were worth advocating for. I have a violent crime. So that kind of automatically pushes me off to the margins and in a really bad place. And that kind of like came to the forefront. And I remember having a, a conversation with Caitlin and it was like a really real moment where it was like, dude, we're doing everything we could. Um, but because of your past, it doesn't look too well for you. I was like, yeah, I know. Um, so that's what I'm, understanding to how like it plays out respectability politics that um since i was a violent offender regardless of me um uh, um being violated for dui um didn't really matter yeah yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, you know, just the notion that basically um, in order for black and brown people, marginalized, oppressed people to be um, treated as human, that we need to behave and act in ways that conform to what white society thinks makes us worthy of being recognized as human. Right. And, and, and that's at the core of, you know, of, of a lot of um, the kind of advocacy that you're talking about, you know, mm-hmm. so people are willing to advocate for the college graduate, right, um, or the master's mm-hmm. student or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely uh, agree with that because like one of the, some of the work that I've been doing for like a long time and along with PEP, and they've kind of like been backing me on this is one is like um, the message of inclusivity because it yeah. became like a trend, but at one point, I'm like, it's not here no more, but I'm like, we're still not inclusive. Um, yeah. But PEP has worked to be inclusive and, and pretty much is doing it. Um, but also, like, the narrative of civilizing yeah. a, a mm-hmm. group of people, it's a long narrative that is, could be traced back to, to the transatlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. And it's just a narrative that we all think about. And it, it kind of makes me think about Frederick Douglass and what he said in one of his um, speeches, like the only reason, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, it's like the only reason why I'm here is because I've been propped up by some guy. Mm-hmm. And giving credibility, not on my own, but through somebody else's own credibility yeah. to yeah. have the platform or the space. And I think it's very important when you think about that space or the platform. And it's very important to acknowledge that all the people deserve, like, um, a chance at humanity, I guess. Absolutely. And it's not to reduce it to like this neoliberal logic, but it's to think about it for like what it really is, is that many of the people who do harm or the most harm in the world already hold degrees, already mm-hmm. hold power or authority versus yeah. those who don't. And the act of education is not as a civilized, it's not an act that civilizes a group of people. That's a Western narrative. Rather, it's a tool for employment, for opportunity, or for resources, mm-hmm. rather yeah. than this act of like civilizing a barbarian. Yeah, and it's the reason why we should be, you know, advocating and working so hard and making dozens of calls and writing letters and petitions and etc. is not because you know Jose Diaz is X, but because Jose Diaz is. Period. The right. end. That's it. Right. You're a human being. And that should be good enough, right? And right. that um, that's something, again, and you, you raised this when you were talking about, um, you know, the dichotomy between violent and nonviolent, um, you know, uh, people convicted of violent versus nonviolent offenses. And I think it's important to reframe that language rather than saying violent and nonviolent <laughs> offenders, um, people convicted. Victim. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Things. Um, and it's something Brian and I spend, oh my God, entirely a lot. I'm not going to say too much time because I think <laughs> a lot, though. <laughs> yeah. We get that question so much. And it's, you know, it's really kind of infuriating sometimes. You know, we have about, uh, I think, seven minutes left here. And I know you've had a really long day. Um, so I want to be mindful of your time and let you rest. I did have like one more question. Uh, sure. for you. Um, 
You know, there's over the last several weeks, there's been a lot of demands floating around about, you know, what incarcerated people need, you know, what uh, should happen right now or what should happen next. And I just wanted to sort of ask you, you know, based on what you've seen over the last few weeks and actually being on the inside, you know, what are what I guess, you know, one is like, what do you think should happen next? But also, like, what are the concrete needs? What should the demands be? based on what you witnessed and the people you talked to and so on and so forth, the conditions on the inside right now? Um, first and foremost, we need to be released. Um, there is no doubt about that being at the top of the priority list. And there's nothing, any, anything short of that kind of like falls short of any demands. But um, first I will call like for the release of parolees, um, people who are facing misdemeanor crimes and, and reducing bail to individuals. Cause a lot of guys will bail out had their, bail had, hadn't been so high. So there are like many, many different forms of reform that are actually ex- falling short extremely or just fighting a severely uphill battle. Um, but if I were to say second to, to being released, it's like um, give us adequate medical care. Give us adequate time to use the phone. Um, give us adequate um, um access to cleaning equipment. Um, these are just some of the basic needs that we should be given, I feel, if we are going to be incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Um, and give us like adequate access to like legal resources. It's just falling short on so many different levels. Like um, one of the things I learned recently was that during like a, um, a parole preliminary hearing, even if you requested a legal aid and it's written that you request a legal aid and for some reason that the legal aid doesn't show up, mm-hmm. they'll, the judge will automatically just railroad you and process you through like the hearing. But if you object to it and ask that the, a lawyer be present, um, the, it kind of stops the process. Right. But the issue is, is that Nobody knows you could really object to it. You're just automatically railroaded. So there's like, you need access to at least up-to-date legal resources. So the lower library be like at least updated. Yeah. At bare bare minimum. So for people who have to go through it, we're able to have up-to-date information to fight their cases. So at least they're fully informed. Yeah. Um. Yeah, because I'm not. I'm not a person who's in, into like pers like thinking about ways to better the prison. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The best way to have a, a good prison is to have no prison in my eyes. We're in good and, company, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you know. So <laughs> that's pretty much it. And I think um, you know, I can't. I will. I will probably. I don't want to jump the gun and say I speak for Pep on that, but I think I don't. At our core, we're like abolitionists. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, Kim, I don't know if, if you had any final questions, but I wanted to thank you so much, Jose, for your time um, and for speaking with us today. No problem. I'm more than happy just to spread the word and just advocate for people who were still there because I'm out and I don't feel good about being out knowing that there's other people in there. Still, yeah. still, like in the same danger I was. That's just not fucking right, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
No, I don't, I don't have any other questions. I'm, you know, so freaking glad you're home. Uh, it's not you. been, uh, you know, checking in um, with folks to get status updates and find out what was going on. And, uh, you know, really uh, just, you know, thinking about you and everyone else um, that is still inside. And, uh, you know, it's like, um, as we're working to get other people out, I'm also really, really glad um, that, that you're home.